Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to preach this morning on this thought, remain unshaken, remain unshaken. And that's really uh, what we want to do and really kind of hopefully give the uh, sense, the idea of what is in the theme remain, what the thought process is, and uh, kind of why it was picked as the theme for this year. Hebrews chapter 12. We're just going to read one verse to kind of get us started, then we're going to back up some and work our way hopefully back to that verse. If we don't get all the way back, we'll just finish it tonight, but the plan is to get back and uh, go from there. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 27. If you'll stand with me, give you one more chance to move. It's always good to move your legs once before you sit for three hours. That's always a good idea, and uh, so we'll give you one more opportunity there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 27 this morning, and this word... Yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. That's really what we want to be, people who remain because we cannot be shaken because of the way that we've been made and built by our God. And that's what we'll see this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your power. We pray now that you'll work and bless in this service, and Lord, that you will uh, really just speak servant. Lord, I pray that it'll be your words and the message you want preached today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I think you may be seated. We find here really a powerful uh, passage of Scripture. We're going to back up to verse number 18 and uh, kind of work our way back down through here just a little bit. But uh, the writer of Hebrews, uh, I believe the Apostle Paul, so if I mention that, then uh, don't tell me I'm wrong necessarily. I know there's different views, and so we'll just look at it different. But I only say that because somewhere I'll probably say Paul said. And uh, we see the writer here of Hebrews. He is speaking, and he is uh, really trying to bring home the whole purpose of the book. Chapter 13 is the end of the book. Uh, practical application, but chapter 12 is the last thing where he's really just driving the principles and truths home, and the point of the whole book is that is better. He's better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he's better than the Old Testament prophets, I mean he's just better than everything else, he's better than Judaism, and some of these Hebrew Christians were thinking about going back under the law, back into their old ways of Judaism, back into their old religion, And they are contemplating that because of all the pressures that are in their life. And they're not really sure how to handle these things. And they are being shaken by some of what is taking place. And so here we find a passage where the writer is making his final argument, his final plea. He's driving home the final points of the book uh, that he's going to really uh, try to drive in deep to the heart. And as he does that, this is the manner in which he chooses to end uh, all but those final application parts of the message in chapter 13. So he says here, verse number 18, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they uh, that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Say, okay, pastor, he's driving home his last point. What's the point? 
I mean, he's talking about the mountain, the shaking, the fearing, the quaking. He's talking about Moses. He's, what are we talking about in the passage? And I want you to see, first of all, this morning, a reviewed message. A reviewed message. And if you picked up notes this morning on the way in, we'll try to have those. Uh, probably won't be every Sunday, but most Sundays. And uh, be able to get those in your hands. And hopefully that'll help if it helps you. And uh, if you say, Pastor, it doesn't help me to have notes, then uh, just distracts me, that's fine. Lay them to the side. I'd rather have your heart than your head. But uh, if it helps you follow along and be able to kind of uh, get more out of it, then maybe that'll be a help. And we see there a reviewed message. Really what the writer is doing these are all Israelite, they're Hebrew Christians, and uh, they've converted from Judaism to trust in Christ. And so what he's doing is he's reminding them of something. He's reminding them of Mount Sinai. And so he's reviewing the message. He's reviewing the truths that they would have understood that are represented in Mount Sinai, where the law, the Old Testament law, had been given. The Bible tells us, and you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 19, uh, and you have a couple of these verses there, but in Exodus chapter 19, it tells us about this setting that is being talked about here in Hebrews. It says, it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Now realize the voice of the trumpet, it's not an actual trumpet blowing. It's a voice that has that kind of a power, that kind of a volume. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended to the, uh, as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. It's interesting, it's, it's as though God comes and he descends in his holiness upon this mountain. And, and as he descends down upon the top of the mountain, the mountain is, is not a sure enough foundation for the glory and the power of our God. The mountain itself cannot hold up. And, and so it's as though this mountain, this quaking that is taking place, it's an earthquake upon the mountain, and, and our God has ascended upon it in all of his holiness. And so the fire, it, it pictures that which purifies. It pictures the very holiness of God. And we know that throughout Scripture would be consistent. And, and then it talks about there being this black smoke, and, and the whole thing is just burning with this fire. And, and it's an incredible picture, and you can hear this voice like a trumpet that it begins with, but then it says it got long. By the way, that's proof that Bible preaching, even when it's directly from God, is always long. Amen? And so if it's not long, it's probably not Bible. And so he says, hey, this is, uh, it got long, and then he says it got louder and louder. And so it's as though God is preaching a message to these people, his nation, he's speaking to them, and it's as though as he's giving his message, and he's going to, in just a short time now, uh, give to Moses the law, that's part of what he's going to call him up here for on, on Mount Sinai, but as God is speaking to the people, he's getting more and more fervent, more and more excited, his, his voice was already loud, it was already like a trumpet, but now it's getting louder and louder as he's speaking the message. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to these Christians that are Israelite, hey, remember what your forefathers, remember under Judaism, remember under law, remember where it all came from. It came from this day and there was this fear. And you have Moses and the people, they gathered around the mountain at the base. And as they're there, they're looking up. And it's interesting, the Bible tells us that the, the holy fire of God has descended and the whole mountain is burning. 
the whole mountain is quaking and the whole thing is on, on a smoke. It's interesting that our God revealed to the world and revealed to his people here in this moment as he was revealing himself at the moment of giving the law, we find that God is infinitely holy. That's what he's revealing himself as to these people. And he's saying he wants them to to grasp and understand the very holiness of God. But, But it's interesting As he is revealing to them the very holiness in fire, he's also revealing a second truth, and that is that God is infinitely distinct. See, our God is a holy God, but he's unlike any other. He is distinctly holy. And we know that, but God showed that to these people. Here's a fire that is burning. And we know sometimes in the midst of a fire, uh, and we can understand this from different people, there's darkness because of the smoke. But normally, if you're outside of the fire, if you're not on the mountain, you're away from the mountain a little bit, and the mountain is burning, it's not going to provide primarily darkness. It's going to provide some light. Because the fire provides light outside of it and and, and out away from it. These people are out some from the fire, but there's no brightness. They're not seeing any brightness, only the smoke and the darkness that is descending. Here's the picture of that. God is saying to these people, I am holy and there's separation between me and you. And he's about to give them the law and the whole purpose of which is to show them how wicked and sinful they are. And he's saying, you're nothing like me. You cannot approach me and you're not even close to me. And here they are standing at the bottom of this mountain and God is giving this picture and he's about to give the law, the Old Testament law, and that's why it says there in Hebrews uh, that they could not uh, handle what was being said to them. They couldn't bear it because they couldn't handle that Old Testament law. It showed them they were a sinner, but it could not save them. And so God comes here and he reveals to these people a little bit about himself. He shows them a little bit of who he is. And it says then, uh, he's waxing louder and louder. Moses spake, God answered him by a voice. And the Lord, now it says, came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount. And Moses went up. If you look in verse 21 of Hebrews 12. It says, so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. So imagine the picture. Moses is down here at the bottom of the mountain. God is speaking. He's getting louder and louder and louder. Moses said something. God answered him. Then God descended. Now he's already, his holiness and all that is on the mountain apparently, but now in another way. He descends on on the top of the mountain. And here's Moses down here. And they've been told, don't even come close to the mountain. And now God says, Moses, come up here. And he's exceedingly fearful. Can you imagine the whole thing is shaking? The whole thing is on fire. The whole thing has smoke rising to the heavens. The whole thing is darkness and blackness and fire and quake. And he says, I am exceeding fearful. And Moses comes up and it's interesting. As soon as he gets up, God says, go back down. And uh, it's really an interesting story. You should go read it. But the, the reality is he comes up. And he comes before the Lord, and it's all being revealed that God is saying, I'm holy, and I am distinct, and man cannot come unto me. The writer reminds these believers, remember under Judaism what you have. Under religion, all you can do is the best you can do, and you can never approach God. You can say all the prayers you want to say. You can go through all the religious rigmarole you want to go through. 
You can know all the facts. You can know everything about it. But if you have no relationship through Jesus Christ, you cannot come unto God. It's impossible. He to you has not revealed himself because it's in Christ that God is revealed. And so at Sinai, when the law was given, there's no revelation of God. There's no greater really understanding of him. The only thing that they could really grasp from Sinai is he is holy, we are not, and we are separated from him by the fact, the blackness, the darkness, the smoke, the sin, we're separated from him by the fact that we are not holy and he is distinct and will never be like him. That was Sinai. He says to him, remember, you came to Sinai, or he says to him here, I'm sorry, you haven't come to Sinai. But now notice what he says, the next verse, verse number 22, but ye are coming to Mount Zion. Oh, that's good news. It's good news to the Israelite. It's good news to the Christian. It's good news all around. Ye are come unto Mount Zion. And then he's going to go on and say some things about that. And we'll hit those here in just a moment. So they could not endure what was said at Sinai, just like we could not endure. Verse number uh, 20 here of, of Hebrews, we can't endure it. We can't endure what was said. The law was given, and God never intended that we would keep the law fully. It was given only to show us we're a sinner who's in need of a savior. That we're a sinner who cannot come to God by ourselves. The job of the law was always to bring us to Christ. Not to bring us to salvation by our works. Galatians 3 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. Once we've come to Christ by faith, now we no longer have to worry about that Old Testament law because it's not separating us from God. He's not saying we don't have to live a holy life, a life set apart to, to God. Grace is no excuse for a lack of holiness. What he is saying, though, is that because we're under that grace and we've been saved by faith, it's no longer stopping us from being able to come to him. We're no longer under the thumb of the law. What a reality, what a truth. For this ending of the, the primary preaching almost part of the book of Hebrews to come to. So that's where he brings these believers in their mind. Then he tells them, verse 22 again, that they didn't come to that place. They've come to a better place. They've come to the place called Mount Zion. They've come to a place that is of greater importance. I want you to see secondly this morning, a revealed message. We see a reviewed message, remember from the Old Testament, but here's a revealed message, and we see, first of all, the speaker of the message. It's God who is speaking from heaven, the Bible tells us. And so God is the one who is speaking. God is the one who's going to uh, reveal himself. And the Bible tells us from the very get-go that, uh, from the very get-go of the book of Hebrews, that this is different than how God dealt in the Old Testament. Remember what it says, the first two verses of the book of Hebrews, God, who at sundry time in diverse manner, spake in time, time past unto the fathers by the prophets. That same God, it says, in verse 2, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Here we see, just as we sang about a little bit ago, the one who is the God uh, who made all the lands. We see that this is the same God who is speaking to us. If you look in verse number 25, at the end of the verse, it says, if we turn away from him uh, that speaketh 
from heaven. Um, it says he spoke on earth earlier in the verse, but now we'd be turning away if we reject the gospel from him that speaketh from heaven. That's Jesus. The speaker of this message, the one who's revealing God to man, is Jesus himself, the speaker of the message. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the only one who could do this. In John chapter 3, remember he was sitting at the top, and he's talking to Nicodemus, and as he's talking to Nicodemus, he made this statement. He said, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, past tense, even the Son of Man which is in heaven, present tense. You know what he did? He sat on the housetop, and he looked over and he said, Nicodemus, there's nobody that could be able to reveal the message. There's nobody that can do what I'm doing. There's nobody else that, could, that can just go into heaven except for the one who came down from heaven, that's me, Nicodemus, as God, even though right now I'm actually sitting in heaven. Can you imagine somebody looking at you and saying, I'm in heaven, and I'm talking to you on earth at the same time. But you know, previously, God had spoken on earth. He'd spoken through prophets. He'd used a voice. He'd come down on Mount Sinai, that's the specific context here, and he had spoken to them from Mount Sinai. But now, New Testament, he who is seated in the heavenlies currently while he was walking on this earth. He who could be in two and really in every place all at the same time. The one who is God in the flesh. He, Jesus himself, came and revealed the message. We see here the speaker of the message, the one who gave it. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What a message. So we see not only the speaker, but secondly, we see the significance of the message. This is where we're going to move fairly quickly uh, and try to get some of this packed in and just see how far we can get this morning. But I want to give you, uh, and some of these I'm just going to mention, but eight elements here of this divine message that the writer of Hebrews gives them. He says, you are come. There are eight places that we come to or that these people had come to. He says, you're come unto Mount Zion. That's the first one. Mount Zion pictured grace to the Israelite. There are three mountains that are especially imp uh, important to the Israelite nation, three that would be kind of the, the mountain peaks, if we could say it that way, of the pictures that would be here. The first was Mount Zion, and he's already mentioned Mount Zion. Mount Zion is important because it's the place where the law was given, and so it's the picture of law. The second of those is Mount uh, Sinai, or excuse me, Mount Zion is what we're looking at now. Uh, we'll come back to Mount Sinai pictured law. That's where the law was given. The third of those mountains then would be Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, you remember that's where Abraham uh, went to sacrifice Isaac and God stopped him there and uh, he obeyed in a right manner. Uh, Mount Moriah pictured sacrifice because Mount Moriah was the place where the temple was founded uh, during Jesus' earthly ministry. It's the place where the sacrificial lamb would be offered. It's the place where for generations uh, and, and year after year after year, all the sacrifices were being made. And Mount Moriah to the uh, Israelite would have pictured or been the idea that sin could be covered for a time, but it really was just picturing the Messiah. It couldn't forgive, it couldn't wash away, it, it could merely cover. And, and so sacrifice and religion, it is a reminder of Mount Moriah that sacrifice and religion really cannot bring true blessing. True blessing was only able to come at Mount Zion, the picture of grace. True blessing did not come from law. 
And true blessing did not come from a lamb, the blood of a lamb being sacrificed, uh, a, hum- a physical lamb, but true blessing came only through one source, through the Messiah, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. So these three pictures would be here, and two of them are being used in this passage, and he's helping them to understand. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 13, there in your notes, that Jesus suffered without the gate. He didn't suffer there in the place of the temple, the place where the other lambs were. He wasn't even welcome there at that point. And so he suffered without the gate, and it's an interesting picture in all of that. Here's the true blessing, and yet they didn't, didn't see him at all. So we have these three mountain peaks, two of them being used in the story, Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. Mount Zion then was the picture of grace and final pardon. It was the picture of the place for the Israelite, and this would be looking forward still for us into future prophecy, that it's the place where there will be complete and final grace and forgiveness in a national sense. So Paul, or the writer here, writes to these Israelite Christians. He says, don't go back over there to Mount, Zion, uh, Mount Sinai. You don't want to go back to the law. And don't try to live over here at, uh, at the, uh, well, now I'm getting them all mixed up in my head, at uh, Mount Moriah, because that's just the picture of the one who is coming, the picture of that grace is coming, it's been promised. Here's what happened, though. One day Israel's going to get to that Mount Zion moment you know what? You have already come there to Mount Zion. You, because you came in Christ, you don't have to wait to come as a national sense. And by the way, this is where it applies to every one of us who is not an Israelite. We don't have to try to come as a nation. But when we come individually, we get the promise of Mount Zion to the nation of Israel, that promise being that God will give complete forgiveness of sin and give the grace of God in our lives. Oh, we're not taking the place of Israel, as some would say, but we are receiving that blessing. We are receiving that which, as a nation, they won't until into the end times. We can receive it now because we're not coming as a national, we're in a sense, we're coming individually and being washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So he uses this picture. He says, this is better. You're getting something that you're hoping for someday, but you're getting it today. And it's not coming for the nation until someday still. And so he uses all these pictures to help them to understand. The Bible tells us here, we come to Mount Zion. Then it says, uh, next we come to the city of the living God. That would be heaven. It's a real place, amen? It's a real place with real dimensions and real building materials, and we're told all about it in Revelation, and that's the city of the living God. Then there's an innumerable company of angels, and and he's saying you're brought to, you're one day going to be in the very presence, in a real literal sense of God. You'll see his city, you'll see all the angels, it's all there. Then he says the next place we come is to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That's quite a name. I'd say uh, uh, quite a title to put on this church. But uh, the word church, the called out assembly, this is the general assembly and church of the firstborn. We know that Jesus is the firstborn of every creature, the Bible tells us. But it also tells us he's the firstborn from the dead. Have you ever wondered about that passage? What do you mean he's the firstborn from the dead? Others have been raised from the dead. Jesus did it in his lifetime. And so what about those people? Why, what does it mean that they were not the firstborn from the dead or the first to be raised from the dead? Or, or what's it talking about? The idea there is not physical death. 
He's not the firstborn of the physically dead. He's the firstborn of those who have died spiritually. Remember, he took the price and the penalty of our spiritual death on himself. And remember, the price of death is the fact of being away or separated from God. The price of sin is that it separates from the holiness of the Almighty God. So Jesus on that cross took all of our sin, not on his back as a burden, but in his body, the Bible says. When he did, the holy wrath of God was poured out on him. The Bible says it pleased him to bruise him. Why? Because he was judging sin, and that pleased the holy wrath of God against sin. Remember in that moment when he turned his back on the Son. Jesus did not just die physically, but he took the price and the weight of our hell, our eternal spiritual death on himself, and he paid it off, and he defeated it. That's a message right there. That's the message we get to give the world. He didn't just die in your place physically. He died in your place in a spiritual sense, far greater than the physical. And now he's the firstborn. He's the only one who could defeat that and be born uh, back alive or made back alive or literally recreated is the idea here, that he could be uh, uh, remade. And, and he's the firstborn from that, that, that he died in a physical and a spiritual sense, but then he came back to life. But for him, it was not creation. It was being firstborn of his own power, of his own ability. He brought himself back to life because he is almighty God. We can't do that, but do you realize it's only by the grace of God that it doesn't read the last born or the only born, that he's the only one because if it was by merit, that's how it would read. Praise God, it's not by our merit though. It's by his grace. He says, no, 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 Jesus, he's the first of them, but he's only the firstborn. But there's a whole new element, there's a whole new creation, literally, that he's making, and he's the first one. He conquered that spiritual death, but now he's provided so others can be made like he is, so that they're set free from that physical death, so that they are born or created in him, in Christ Jesus. And he's just the first one. But now there are many more that get to come after him. If you're saved, you're a part of that. Remember what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 10. For we are his workmanship, think about it, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are regenerated, the Bible tells us. We're regened at the moment of salvation. Literally, you are created anew. We're not talking about the physical body. We're talking about a whole new line. And it's a line created in Christ Jesus. That first line, when we were first born, when we were first made, that's under Adam. And it leads to damnation. And that's why no person, no matter how good they may be or how many works they may do or how much effort they put in, that's why nobody can get to heaven by their own merit. Because they cannot remake themselves. They can't regene themselves. Uh, they can't be created in Christ Jesus on their own. And, and so no matter how good they are, they're still in this line, this line of Adam. But at the moment they receive Christ as their Savior, they step over into the line that he's in, the line where he's the firstborn, the line where he has regenerated them, remade them, recreated them in Christ Jesus, and we become his workmanship, created in him, to follow him. And so he literally has remade us fresh and new. And so here we see 
The firstborn uh, of every creature and the firstborn of the dead is what he tells us. So God in his grace allows us then to enter that eternal line that has been made and we are made in the perfection and the righteousness of Christ. We don't live it in this life, we understand that. But positionally, that's where we are made and we're created there in that place with eternal life rather than eternal death that we were born with. And then we see that we are brought next in these verses to God the judge. And, and really the idea here is that we can stand in confidence before God. That we can stand before him even as our judge and with confidence we are brought before him. Then we see uh, next, spirits made perfect. These would be saints that have already died and gone to heaven. Their spirit is already made perfect. We'll see them one day. We are brought to Jesus, the mediator. And uh, certainly we don't have time to dig into that. But praise God, we have a mediator who loves us, who's our high priest, and who is tempted at all points like as we are. He's the mediator between God and men. And then it tells us we are brought to the blood of sprinkling. The blood of sprinkling, what's that? The blood of sprinkling looks back again to the Old Testament. If you remember in the Old Testament, that's how things were purified. So they would have the basin of blood from a bull and they would come in before uh, the mercy seat one time a year and they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. That was dealing with the sins or covering the sins of the nation. If you remember when Aaron and his line was dedicated as being priests and set apart as holy unto the Lord, the Bible says Moses was told to sprinkle them with blood. All through the Old Testament, you see this idea of the sprinkling of blood. It was physical sprinkling of literal blood. Uh, the tabernacle, all the vessels in the tabernacle, they were all sprinkled with blood because it was all consecrated to God to be used in his service and on his, uh, in his behalf. And so it was all set apart as being holy. Anything holy was sprinkled with blood, and that's what set it aside as being such. But this blood... <laughs> that this talks about, this sprinkling of blood that we're brought to as believers, the far greater sprinkling. This blood, it's not the physical blood that is dipped on physical fingers and physically sprinkled onto a person. But rather, this is the blood that Jesus shed on the cross and that Jesus took to the mercy seat of heaven and that he sprinkled there, the blood that not only covers sin, but washes it away eternally. This is the blood that it's speaking of. Uh, Newell said in his commentary, this blood of sprinkling is not an experience, but is view of what happened at the cross and what was done for us there. Hebrews chapter 9 clarifies, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, here's what the eternal blood does, or the blood of Christ does, it will purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we're not talking about purging or cleansing the flesh, the outer. It cleans the conscience. It's that which gives peace with God. It's not that which is of a physical nature. And that's why we talk about, and we sing songs about, I've been washed by the blood. But unless you went to a strange church somewhere, none of us have been dipped in a physical basin of blood to be washed by the blood. Because we're not talking about the outside, the flesh. It can't be cleansed talking about the inside the new man that one who's recreated he's been washed by the blood of christ then we're placed in him and he takes residence in us and now that is made pure and clean and it is consecrated to god and it's to be set apart for his use just as the vessels of the temple 
were set apart, consecrated for his use alone. It's an incredible picture. It's incredible what he's saying here. And, and so he tells us these things. And we see here that he mentions the blood of Abel. And there's just not time to dig into all this. But the idea here would be uh, that, that the blood of Abel uh, cries out justice and demands judgment. But the blood of Jesus cries out forgiven and demands grace. The blood of Abel, he's saying there was a blood that was shed, and the blood of Abel, it called for that judgment, but the blood of sprinkling, and this is in your notes, that is the application by faith of the shed blood of Christ, and it speaks of judgment past forever and eternal peace with God himself. That's what we're talking about. So you say, Pastor, we already know this. I've trusted Christ as my Savior. It's a whole salvation message. Is there a point for me? Well, yes, I hope you haven't missed it. So far, But the reality is this, here's what helps us to remain, here's what makes us steadfast and sure in life. It all goes right back to the gospel. It all comes right back to what happened at the moment of salvation and understanding it's not just that I get to go to heaven, it's not just that, oh, I got saved. No, 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 it's so much more, it's so much deeper. You got remade and regened and recreated and placed in a whole new line and now there's expectations in that and now there's ex uh, uh, joys in that and there's blessings in that and it's a wonderful thing. And so now we see finally the response of men. What do we do with all this? He says, don't go back over there to Sinai. Don't get under the law and, and, and don't go over there to Moriah. That's not where you want to be. But make sure you come here to Mount Zion. That's where the Christian gets to come. So point number three, the response of men. Here's the understanding. Here's the thought. Here's what we're supposed to grasp. Here's what we need to uh, understand. Here's the practical, simple, biblical application in this third point. First of all, we see the warning against refusal. The warning against refusal. Here's where he says to him, we read part of the verse earlier, verse 25, See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth. Much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more, I, uh, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. He says, Hey, there was a time where God came and he spoke on earth. It's a time where God spake through Moses as he gave the law. He spake here. And if you couldn't escape there, you're sure not going to escape this time. He's speaking to you from heaven. And I say to you this morning, if you're here and you've never received Jesus as your personal Savior, if you're relying on any works that you've done or religion you've been a part of, the reality is that it's not because of the, uh, the fact that we're against a certain religion or anything of that nature, there's just nothing that can be done in ourselves that will remake us or recreate us in the line of Christ. So the question this morning is, have you received Jesus as your Savior? Have you made the decision, do you know, not by your merit and not by religion and not by stuff that you've done, but do you know that you know Jesus as your Savior and you're trusting Him alone for your eternal life? Here's the message. Don't refuse. Because if you do, it will have eternal consequences of eternal damnation separated from God in a lake of fire. He says, listen, first of all, let me give you a warning against refusal. Don't refuse to listen. 
Hey, don't go back to other ways and don't try your religion, but make sure that you make a decision on Christ alone. Then I see, secondly, the warning about remaining. And that brings us back to verse number 27. And this word, yet once more signifieth and uh, the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So what's he talking about? Here's what he's saying. Listen, there are things that can be shaken. There was a first creation. That first creation, when God made it and created it, it was perfect, it was pure, it was holy, it was made for his use. But sin. Now we have a world that can be shaken. People can be shaken. Kingdoms can be shaken. The ground can be shaken. The mountain can be shaken. He's going back to Mount Zion. He's reminding them, remember about Mount Zion, how it shook even to where Moses was here. There's a first creation. That first creation, it can be shaken. That first creation, it can be removed. And in fact, will be. Even to the point, as he's talking about in verse number 26, that God's going to shake it one more time. He's looking forward to when God is going to come and he'll have his thousand-year millennial reign and that'll all take place. And then the Bible tells us that God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth and the first heaven and the first earth will be passed away. That's what he's referring to in verse 26. That's that next shaking that he's talking about. That's he's going to shake it one more time. He's going to totally remove everything of that first creation. And if you're still under the line of Adam, you'll be eternally removed. Eternally removed. Oh, you'll have eternal existence. But it will be that which the Bible calls eternal death, separated from God. So the reality is you'll be removed from his presence. Everything around us will be removed. Sometimes the things of this world and, and that are physical, they seem so real. One day they're all just going to be removed by our God. The God who's all-powerful and unmovable, the creator God, he's just going to simply make a new heaven. He's just simply going to make a new earth. And then he's just simply going to take those who were created in Christ Jesus unto good works, and those are going to be the ones living there, who were of that new creation. And so he says there are some things that can be shaken. Those are the things of the old creation. Then there are some things they can't be shaken, and they will remain. Let me just say to you, as we go forward into 2021, I don't have any clue what we'll encounter in this year. I did not anticipate 2020, some of the things we would encounter, and probably you didn't either. I don't have any clue what will come along in this next year. Can I just say to you, if you're saved, you can just simply walk in confidence. You can just simply remain steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to pull back. We don't have to be uh, trying to figure out, well, how do we handle and how do we, no, no, no. We just need to take the gospel boldly with confidence into the world around us. And right now, as much as any time in history, just preach the gospel all the time, Everywhere we go, to every person we encounter, you say, why? Because they need to hear it, number one. And number two, because we can remain, and we can remain without being shaken. We don't have to be shakable, but we can become that if we go back. And that's what he's telling these Hebrew Christians. If you go back to trusting what you used to trust, you become shakable again. But when you're founded on the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, your life and your founding is sure. If you die, you go to heaven. You don't have to worry about it. 
if you live here in some kind of persecution or difficulty, as he would be writing to these people in, you don't have to worry about it. Don't be shaken by that. Just remain. If things are easy and things are good, no problem. Don't relax and become uh, loose as we have in America so often, but rather maintain a steadfastness for the things of God because you're a remainer. So nothing should change based on the circumstances around us. Because your foundation is not the circumstances, your foundation is the gospel, the fact that you didn't go to Sinai to get this. It's not law, it's not what you've done, it's not how good you are. It's the fact you came to Zion and you were forgiven of your sins, and you've received those promises. So he comes, and he gives a powerful statement here. There are some things, they can't be shaken, and they can't be removed. And so he gives us a warning about refusal. He gives us a warning about remaining. And then I see, finally, he gives a word to remainers. And I just want to give you this quickly this morning, but this is really the crux of where we're coming in the whole message. Because if you're a member of our church and you're a part of things and we're looking forward to 2021 together and you say, why did we pick a theme like remain? And I'll just say, when I first got to it, I thought, Lord, that kind of seems strange. It seemed like he was kind of moving that way. And this is why. He's going to give a word to remainers. Verse number 28. Wherefore, so this is those who are not able to be shaken, who remain, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. In other words, that kingdom, that is uh, the fact that we are placed in the kingdom of God, the fact that we are given the grace of God, the fact that it's not us who cannot be shaken, we can be, but it's Christ in us that gives us that sureness, that kingdom that cannot be moved. Uh, be moved. Let us, yeah, he goes on in verse 28, let us have, so here's what he's going to say to the remainder. Number one, let us have grace. Isn't it interesting he doesn't start with boldness? If you're a remainer, if you've been saved, if your life is founded and rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been remade, you've been recreated, you've been regened by him, regenerated. Number one, be filled with the grace of God. I'm not going to preach it, I'm just going to give it to you, but are you filled is the question. Not do you have moments where you can have grace with somebody who rubs you the wrong way. Are you filled to overflowing with the very grace of God in your life? It means, do you give people your favor? God gives us his grace. He gives us his favor. And there's more to it than that, but that's one element. Are, are you favorable? Do you, are you kind? Are you gentle? Are you filled with grace? Next, he says to them, whereby... We may serve God. So this grace allows us to serve God. Here's what's expected then. Acceptably, with reverence, and godly fear. So he says, listen, if you're a remainer, understand it's not your power, it's God's power in you. If you're a remainer, if you're going to be having a life that is steadfast in shifting culture, then you need to understand that it is Christ in you, but then you're commanded to, you're expected to, and you're required to be filled with grace. And then understand it goes beyond just, I have grace for other people. Now there's also an element of service to the Lord himself. And you need to serve in a manner that's acceptable to him. Are you serving him acceptably? Not acceptable to people, acceptable to God. Are you serving acceptably with the right spirit, with the right joy, with the right excitement? Are you serving him alone? And then are you filled with his grace 
as you go forward, making a difference for the Lord Jesus Christ in this life that he's called you to live. Amen. Are you living as he's called the remainder to live? H.A. Ironside said, consuming fire is holiness manifested in judgment. And God, who is light and love, must consume everything that is contrary to his will. Thus the writer of Hebrews ends with this thought, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, that has a couple elements. Number one, those things that can be shaken, he's going to deal with them because of his holiness. But in our lives, if you're saved, the consuming fire of God, its purpose then becomes to cleanse out everything in our life that does not line up with his will and his plan for our life. Are you allowing God to have that control? Are you bringing everything in your life back to the word of God and saying, you know, God just desires to be a consuming fire. Anything that doesn't line up with this, he wants to be dealt with by his power, by his holiness. And that's why he says, be ye holy as I am holy. Because the Holy Spirit of God comes and says, this doesn't line up with the holiness of God in your life. It needs to change. And then it's our job to change it. Yes, by his power, but to choose to change it. Are you doing that? So the remainder has to have grace. The remainder has to serve acceptably. The person who's going to remain and, and be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding, they have to let the holy wrath or fire of God against sin even affect their life and allow God to consume away everything not lining up with him. That becomes the purpose of the Christian life. Lord, I just want to align with you and I want to do what you want me to do in this life and nothing else really matters. I'm just here to serve Jesus every day, all day. Are you saved this morning? Do you know that if you were to die that you'd go to heaven not because you've been good but because you have a personal relationship with God and you've been remade or recreated in his image, the image of one who is not having that death from sin that you were born with, but rather is created into life eternal. There's nothing you can do to get it except receive Jesus as your personal Savior. He did all the work. All you do is receive the gift. Have you made that decision before now? If not, let me encourage you. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. This is the time to make that decision. To have every head bowed, every eyes closed. Maybe this morning, you would just simply say, Pastor,